so graciously, thank you, agreeing to spend time with us. Um, our speaker is uh, Atalia Omer, who is a professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the Kroc Institute, I'm sorry, for international peace studies at the Keo School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame in, North, in, in the United States. Uh, professor Omer is also the Dermot T.J. Dunphy Visiting Professor of Religion, Violence, and Peacebuilding at Harvard University and a Senior Fellow at the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative at the same university's Religion and Public Life Program. She earned her PhD in Religion, Ethics, and Politics from the Committee on uh, the Study of Religion at Harvard University. And most importantly, her research focuses on religion, violence, and peacebuilding with a particular focus on Palestine-Israel as well as, on, <coughs> as well as theories and methods in the study of religion. Professor Omer was awarded the Andrew Carnegie, the prestigious Andrew Carnegie Fellowship in 2017 to complete a manuscript titled Decolonizing Religion and Peacebuilding. Among other publications, Omer is the author of When Peace is Not Enough, How the Israeli Peace Camp Thinks About Religion, Nationalism and Justice, and Days of Awe, Reimagining Jewishness in, solidar in Solidarity with Palestine. She is also a co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of, uh, of Religion, Conflict and Peacebuilding. And the title of her, to talk, to, of her talk today is <laughs> Pathways Towards a Jewish-Israeli Restorative Ethics. Antalya, thank you so much for coming here. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me and for hosting me today and taking me to the Harry Potter's dining room. <laughs> Oh, like <laughs> a version of it. Um, the Oxford theme park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oxford. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Um, I'm. I'm really um, excited um, to be here. Also because I'm. Um, you know, I had conversations with you, and I'm glad that they that finally it's, those conversations are not only in my head. So thank you for all your scholarship too, and uh, and really for um, for being here for all of you. So I. Um, Revise the title of my talk just a little bit. I call it Jewish, Non-Jewish Restorative Pathways in Palestine, Israel. So um, in my most recently published... Oh, yeah. Um, sorry, I kind of... Anyway, okay. Uh, so uh, in my most recently published book, which uh, was just mentioned, Days of Awe, Reimagining Jewishness in Solidarity with Palestinians, I examine American-Jewish solidarity and its relation to reimagining American Jewishness as multiracial, multigender, and anti-racist, as well as relatedly other-centric rather than ethnocentric. Today, I will examine how Jewish-Israeli restorative justice practices, including those articulated by the feminist organization Zohrot, and the petition of Jewish Israelis against Israeli apartheid, propelled by the escalation of violence in May 2021, just now, unsettle and trouble a move to the diasporic as the primary Jewish source of ethical critique of Israelism. Okay, so first, what is restorative justice? Restoration and reparation constitute interrelated processes designed to redress harms and injuries and imagine pathways for alternative futures, informed by the concreteness of historical realities and intergenerational relational patterns. For the present reflection, it is important to underscore what restoration and repair are not uh, in the context of Palestine-Israel. So the, the reigning paradigm interprets Israel, the um, supposed Jewish state, as a response to the, to the Shoah or itself a form of repair or atonement for Christian Europe's crimes. As Mahmoud Mamdani writes recently, quote, this claim makes sense only if we accept settler rather than Im uh, immigrant logic, end of quote. The obscuring of settler colonial logic by religious language and biblical claims, as the Palestinian-Israeli scholar Nadim Ruhana sees it, enables Jews to make nativist arguments about their link to the land, namely that finally, quote-unquote, restored, they are the real indigenous people of Palestine. 
in the same way in which the settler colonial atonement model displaced historical responsibility for genocide of Jews from European Christians to Palestinians, so does the discourse of restoration of the Jews in the land of Zion has deep uh, Christian roots, where the restoration of the Jews has constituted an important move for Christian eschatology, kind of end time theology, while also serving Western Christian colonial designs in the MENA region. So the concept and practice of restoration, often relying on the mechanism of biblical archaeology, as Nadia Abu El Hajj has demonstrated classically, mm -hmm. therefore needs to be reclaimed from this theological imagination and or what Mark Ellis, um, Jewish Palestine uh, liberation theologian, has called the ecumenical pact. This is restoration, to reiterate, that has exhibited the settler colonial logic. Patrick Walls captured this logic with the often quoted phrase, invasion is a structure, not an event, which seeks replacement and elimination of the natives. Mm -hmm. Unsurprisingly, this confluence of theopolitical agendas and orientalist underpinnings has also involved projecting the empirical presence of Arab Jews in the region over centuries, too, as fossilized proof for Jewish claims of indigeneity. Of course, Arab Jews were marginalized from Euro-Zionism and continue to be marginalized within Israeli Ashkenazi hegemonic discourse, even if they do participate in and benefit from Jewish supremacy. Hence, what many Jews lament as the hijacking of good old secular Zionism by religious settler and annexationist discourse is both misplaced and myopic. Since the settler colonial Christian atonement model and the Jewish restorative approach both reveal a reliance on theological imaginations and blindness to Palestinian experiences at the receiving ends of such grammars, they are neither restorative nor reparative. And their claim to repair, quote unquote, and restoration of the Jews in the land falls short of the synchronon of restorative justice approaches, namely um, the, uh, such approaches, victim centricity and intentionality in bringing into the circle all those affected for the justice part of restorative justice to be meaningful, it needs to be multi-perspectival and robustly account for the human rights of all those affected. Here, intercultural human rights norms constitute the synchronon for in inter interrogating Jewish and non-Jewish critiques of Zionism. Next, not only about the Jewish moral exile. Bringing Europe so to speak, into efforts to develop a new ethical grammar for a peace and justice paradigm is precisely what recent academic efforts, and here I'll only cite um, the book by Bashir, uh, the work of Bashir Bashir and Amos Goldberg, who build on older intellectual genealogy um, dating back to at least to Edward Said, and their effort to think about the relationship between the Shoah and the Nakba as interweaved. Such scholarly interventions exemplify relational restorative justice potential because of their resistance of erasure and their centralizing of the imperative to redress historical injustices and memories. Not surprisingly, they emerge from within Israeli, uh, uh, the Israeli Academy, where increasingly there is a coalescing of scholarly output by Palestinian Israeli scholars deploying the lens of settler colonialism to interpret their realities and potential futures. And here I'll cite a few, Arich Sabahuri, Lana Tatur, Raif Zreik, just a few examples of Palestinian Israeli scholars who are thinking in those spaces. But the loudest voices come from the US. Peter Baynard, a self-described repentant American Jewish liberal Zionist, concludes his widely circulated piece, Teshuvah, a Jewish case for Palestinian return, 
addressing exclusively the broader English-speaking Palestine solidarity movements, as well as American, but not at all necessarily Israeli Jews, with a sense of agony over the Jewish moral exile. Accordingly, his appeal to the Jewish practice of tshuva, or Jewish return, qua repentance, ought to translate into concrete policies of um, Palestinian return, at which point he refers to some attempts by Palestinian and Israeli, uh, Israelis to imagine, even concretely, pos the possibility of Palestinian return of refugees. Mm -hmm. The engine for the practice of tshuva, repentance but ret and return, is the Jewish desire to undo the moral exile, according to Baynard, that the idolatry of Jewish power represents. For Baynard, the depth of tshuva as undoing this moral exile, therefore, functions ultimately to restore Judaism, save it from Israelism. While this is certainly a critical task, undoing the moral exile is not the same as the concept of restorative justice, which is grounded in the victims and their needs and in the moral imperative, along with actual hermeneutical or interpretive task for Israeli Jews to reimagine their home. Okay, so um, started by Israeli journalist Meron Rappaport and Palestinian activist Auni Al-Mashni and echoing in the case of Jewish Israeli interlocutors, Baynard's aspiration to end this moral exile, a recent manifesto called A Land for All, Two States, One Homeland, presents a vision of fluidity and at-homeness across the space for quote, both peoples, because, quote, another quote, both have a profound connection to this land or parts of it, whether they call it El Israel or Palestine, and both consider it their homeland. Jewish Israelis and Palestinians live side by side, sometimes intermingle throughout the land, end of quote. What is opening lines of a section title, We Are Meant to Live Together, do is to accept as axiomatic the supposedly equally valid claims of Jews and Palestinians to the land. The words meant to live together may sound generative of alternative scripts for an egalitarian cohabitation in the space from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, but immediately begs the question meant to live together by whom? And what does such a construct obscure and erase? Mm -hmm. Rather than redressing Jewish nationalism's reliance on settler colonial structures, the drafters' point of departure for their vision of reconciliation or repair uh, is the familiar competing nationalisms, one land conundrum. While not in itself a settler colonial atonement or resurrection paradigm, a land for all, this manifesto, normalizes the notion of meant to be as an ethical foundation for the manifesto's justice script. The reconciliatory schema, therefore, doesn't amount to a restorative justice opening, but rather expresses a desire, especially of Jewish-Israeli signatories, to feel at home, both territorially, but also, as we saw in Baynard's case, ethically in terms of their self-perception as enlightened, democratic, and committed to international laws and human rights norms. Israelism manifesting in Kahanism and apartheid exile them from this self-understanding which they seek to restore. They depart from the separationist, ethno-religious, nationalist peace formula of the Oslo Accords by articulating the connection of both peoples to to the entirety of the land. And, and here's another quote. No intentional borders could change these connections, this identity. No international borders could, could sever Palestinians' ties to Jaffa, Haifa, or Lod any more than they could sever Jewish ties to Hebron, Nablus, and Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, end of quote. So despite the stated aspiration to preclude supremacy by one nation over the other, a land for all 
parallel construction that just uh, that in the quote that I just read that analogizes Hebron and Nablus or Bethlehem on the one hand and Jaffa, Haifa or Lod on the other normalizes the aggressive Jewish-Israeli colonization in a striking departure from international legal norms of the territories occupied in 1967. Now, Jaffa, Haifa, and Lod, of course, refer to Palestinian cities, now binational cities, occupied and partly depopulated in 1948, and thus within the jurisdiction of, quote, Israel proper. This analogizing simply exposes that the principles of reconciliation uh, build on a settler colonial act of erasure. I therefore refer to a land for all as an obscuring re reconciliatory frame. The settler colonial erasure is an axiomatic starting point to establish the two people, one land problem. Otherwise, a land for all justice vision relies not on Jewish ethical principles, but on supposedly secular normativity and in, uh, international human rights conventions seeking explicitly a European model of fluidity, of territorial fluidity and movement across space. Others to whom I now turn seek to ground their ethics of plurality and inclusion in Jewish sources and traditions. Okay, so living ethically as Jews in Israel. So Professor Yadgar questions in his re um, recent Israel's Jewish identity crisis, what is the meaning of Jewish sovereignty in Israel? He then laments, I think, <laughs> uh, in his own response to the question that it relies on biological quasi-racial quasi exclusionary logic. Reverberating a bit on a different register both this question and response, Jewish-Israeli anti-occupation activist Michael Manekin articulates an aspiration for Israel to become meaningfully and ethically Jewish in its political ethics, not merely in its demography. After serving as the executive director of Breaking the Silence, an organization of veterans um, that educate the Israeli and other publics, about the occupation through testimonies of ex-soldiers and tours, Manikin founded the Alliance for Israel's Future and directed Molad, which is a think tank dedicated to Israeli democracy. Both the Alliance for Israel's Future and Molad channel resources to deepening and strengthening relationships across Jewish and non-Jewish Palestinian communities as well as recognizing the plurality of the Jewish-Israeli sectors, encouraging progressive activism of communities traditionally not recognized as candidates for pluralistic social outlooks. Manikin opens his recent book, Dawn of Redemption, which sounds nothing like the Hebrew title, by the way, um, with an anecdote from his military service where he felt ashamed and blasphemous in a moment of confrontation with the direct gaze of a Palestinian woman whose home Manikin's unit overtook for, quote, security reasons during the year 2000, which is kind of the, the start of the Second Intifada. The soldiers violated the place, and this violation was embodied in a moment when due to a backed up toilet in the house, he, uh, Michael Manikin, went to urinate outside. The woman who was standing outside looked straight at him, not with fear, but with disgust. At that moment, Manikin became acutely aware of the kippah on his skull. He knew in no uncertain terms that he violated everything Jewish, that his presence there was an act of chilul Hashem, of blasphemy, even if the mission, quote unquote, he and his fellow soldiers were sent to accomplish was framed in Jewish terms with excessive symbolisms and righteous claims. In the opening pages of his book, he therefore poses the nagging question, and the one that echoes um, Professor Yadgar's inquiry, what is the link between Jewish belief and ethics and political power? He asked, um, 
Is it the case that his Israeliness sentences him to be an entirely different Jew than his gentle diasporic grandfather, one who can never be compassionate and justice-loving like his grandfather was in the shtetl? He longs for that gentle diasporic Jew in the midst of an Israel that prides itself in a Judaism of force. At the same time, Manekin distinguishes himself from Jewish powerlessness. He underscores that he doesn't want to erase and deny his Jewish Israeli life. He feels comfortable. Nor does he want to unwind the, the quote, power my people accumulated over the past decades, end of quote. In other words, he repeats a tenet of a Zionist ethos, but wants to inject it with substantial rather than superficial Jewish content. I'm angry because the power of the state was intended to serve the Jews and their ways of life, but instead the Jews be became subjugated to power, he writes. And that's my translation. This quote telegraphs Manekin's outlook as a Jewish-Israeli critic of Zionism, qua Israelism, who contemplates the possibility of subverting the aggressive Judaism of religious Zionists with an ethical and non-belligerent Jewishness of his grandparents, gentle. Still, this reclaiming of gentle Judaism unfolds within an Israeli frame, not a diasporic one, of powerlessness. Therefore, Manekin's task is to reconfigure, as, as, as the task as he says it, is to reconfigure or define for the first time Jewish Israeliness that doesn't rely on Zionist masculinist discourse. Such a Jewish-Israeli ethical critique of Israelism is not unlike Baynard's aspiration to rescue Judaism from its moral exile. Once again, the point of departure is how bad it makes Manekin and Baynard feel about their cherished understanding of their Judaism and how Israelism makes it so ugly and grotesque, a Judaism emb embodied in the person of a kippah wearing IDF soldiers urinating in a Palestinian garden. Manekin's Jewish-Israeli critique of a Jewish Israeliness drunk on power and embedded in narratives of self-defense and powerlessness, nonetheless doesn't amount to a critique of Zionism as a settler colonial discourse that cannot be nice about its displacement slash replacement agenda. As someone who has been long dedicated to anti-occupation work, Manekin is not an apologist, but his starting point for critically engaging with Israelism is not from the perspective of the real victims on whose back Jewish return to an Euro-Christian atonement to its crimes against Jews happened. Instead, like Baynard, Manekin's starting point is his own shame and sense of diminishing Jewish authenticity, a moral exile for one and a moral transgression for another. Clearly, there is a relational sense of obligation and responsibility to the Palestinian in both in interventions. However, the overall task is to repair the Judaism of Yavne, in the case of Baynard, meaning the post-temple uh, Judaism that decentered Jerusalem, and reimagine Jewish Israeliness in the case of Manekin. Manekin writes that Jewish sovereignty exiled traditional ethical modes of reasoning that had shaped previously Jewish thought and ways of life. Yet, unlike diaspora Jews, whose ethical outrage with the militaristic sovereign Jewish state can translate into an outright rejection of Israeliness, Manekin doesn't and cannot forego his Jewish Israeliness. He simply wants to make it more truly Jewish, a more a move which takes him in the opposite direction to the, in his view, to the masculine trajectory of religious Jewish Zionism, but situates him in broader Israeli Jewish trends, preoccupied from across a spectrum with imagining a truly Israeli Judaism that is both post-Cookist, so post-Messianic, uh, and post-diasporic. Diasporic. Manekin's intervention as an Israeli Jewish critic of Zionism shows the limits uh, and blinders, blind spots of a Jewish ethical response that is not relational nor reparative. In distinction, 
a thinker who has been propelled by a relational encounter with the realities and grievances of Palestinians as a source of her critical Jewish critique of Zionism is the philosopher Judith Butler. Butler's par uh, book, Parting Ways, that was published in um, 2012, offers an important intervention in contemporary Jewish ethics. For Butler, justice is not something Jews can access only by re-examining Jewish sources and traditions. Her argument reflects the, the concept of justice as relational, which constitutes a central dimension of a victim-centric restorative justice approach. Butler argues that unless Zionism is fully dismantled, it is impossible to articulate a Jewish account of justice in Palestine-Israel. If Butler's ethical intervention is reparative in its relationality, Mannequin's critique seeks to repair Zionism itself from the perspective of the Jewish tradition and its ethical principles. Even if the source of his critique is the, um, the repeated confrontation with the ugliness of Israeli occupation and is experiencing the occupation as something fundamentally un-Jewish, his main concern is with repairing, as I said, Judaism or imagining an Israeli Judaism he will feel more at home in. This vision of repair lacks in, a, in the kind of relationality Butler demands. At the same time, Butler's ethical intervention lacks Mannequin's insight that a shift in the justice discourse cannot simply happen through a, a priori dismantling of Zionism, but has to be the outcome of reimagining Jewishness in Palestine, Israel, and in conjunction um, embodied political belongings, not an abstraction. Mannequin's reflection on Jewish ethics in an era of Jewish power seeks to centralize Jewish ethics as regulative political norms for the, quote, Jewish state. He is critical of the position of the, of the late, um, uh, often known um, phrase to refer to him is the conscience of Israel. This is Yeshayahu Leibovitch, whose secularist confinement of the religious life of the individual's relation with God facilitated the manipulation of Jewish sources by other self-appointed interpreters or religious authorities. For Leibovitch, no holiness whatsoever can become attached to the state because this sacralization necessarily sanctifies its power, the, the, the power of the state and its institutions. Further, he rejected the validity of the construct Jewish ethics. For him, conduct was either ethical or not, and this does not need to be qualified through appeals to the Jewish tradition or not. Leibovitch, therefore, rejected any political content to the Jewish tradition. What gives content to Judaism for him is simply observing the mitzvot, the commandments, and to the degree that Jewish ethics emerge, this was merely contextual, contextual, historically located. The suspicion of power, accordingly, was merely a function of Jewish powerlessness and marginality for most of European Jewish history. Mannequin, in contrast, wants to imagine the possibility of an ethical Jewish state, Israeli Judaism, and Jewish politics, but a myopic normalization of the settler colonial underpinning of the Jewish state precludes, nonetheless, a reparative ethical grammar. This is where I finally come to a few loci where Jewish Israelis articulate restorative pathways by naming their positionality as beneficiaries of and complicit with a Jewish supremacist regime, as well as their agency, or our agency, I speak as Jewish Israeli, uh, as Jews, in resisting and transforming its logic. The sources of a restorative ethical Israeli Jewishness are, like in Butler, a, relation, a relationality with Palestinians and their narratives of displacement, oppression, and suffering, as well as aspirations for political freedom. At the same time, like in Mannequin's account, they refuse, indeed, they cannot afford an erasure of the realities and contents of Jewish Israeliness and simply reclaim a diasporic belonging. Further, 
what makes restorative practices Jewish is precisely the resistance to the logic of Jewish supremacy as Jews and Israelis. I now will turn to an analysis of Israelis against apartheid, which was released in the midst of, of the violent escalation of May 2021. So hashtag Israelis against apartheid. Israeli Jews call Stop Israel's Apartheid is subtitled an open letter to the international community and con const constitutes a plea, a call, um, almost 20 years after a Palestinian civil society's call for the international community to engage in boycott, divestment, and sanctions tactics to stop the Israeli occupation and the manip manipulative use of the quote, peace process as a mechanism to further entrench the occupation and annexationist policies of Israel. Launched by the campaign group uh, Jews for Decolonization, the Jewish-Israeli plea to the international community comes with the realization that only truly costly consequences in diplomatic and economic arena, and thus a disruption of the almost total impunity Israel has enjoyed internationally, especially under the patronage of the US, can actually change realities and dynamics on the ground. The letter opens with a declaration, quote, we Jewish Israelis oppose the actions of the Israeli government and hereby declare our commitment to act against them. We refuse to accept the Jewish supremacist regime and called upon the international community to immediately intervene in defense of the Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, Jerusalem, the Galilee, the Negev, Alid, Yaffa, Ramle, Haifa, and throughout historic Palestine. This opening statement accomplishes multiple tasks. First, inhabiting the particular identity of Jewish Israeliness. The signatories to this call explicitly subvert the Zionist logic that weaponizes anti-Semitism to silence criticism of Israeli policies. Then the call unsettles the settler colonial logic by underscoring a refusal of the Jewish supremacist regime and defragmenting 48, 67 and other Palestinian communities. Their enemy, in other words, is the regime itself, just like it was for white Africans who joined the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Identifying that Jewish supremacy needs to be dismantled and that this will also and necessarily require international sanctions to pressure Israel and to remove its cover of impunity reveals an effort to think reparatively on the ground, from the ground. This reparative work entails first recognizing how Palestinians have been harmed over decades which is a principle of restorative justice to see what, what were the harms done. So the call reads, Jewish supremacy is the cornerstone of the Israeli regime and its consistent objective is to transfer and obliterate the Palestinian people, their history and their national identity. This objective manifests in continued acts of ethnic cleansing by means of evictions and home demolitions brutal military occupation, denial of civil and human rights, and legislation of a series of racist laws accumulating in the nation state bill, defining the state as the nation state of the Jewish people, and them, and them only. The fact that the call for international sanctions comes from people who inhabit Jewish-Israeli identity itself cons constitutes a source of an ethical Jewish intervention with concrete political ramifications. The letter reveals Jewish ethical agency in a Butlerian sense. For Butler, for a concept of justice to be derived from a specific tradition means that there must be some way for it to depart from the tradition to demonstrate its applicability outside that tradition. She then, Judith Butler, appeals to a process of departure from the tradition as a precondition of any tradition yielding strong political principles. This point has tangible explanatory force, first for our engagement with mannequins, Jewish-Israeli 
ethical critique of Israelism as a source of more just and inclusive political practice, it exemplifies a refusal to relinquish a Jewish exclusionary paradigm, a refusal that obscures the settler colonial paradigm upon which it relies. Butler captures the dilemma astutely, quote, if the critique of state violence relies on principles or values that are finally exclusively or fundamentally Jewish, understood variously and broadly as a religious, secular, or historical set of traditions, then Jewishness becomes a privileged cultural resource and the Jewish framework remains the only or privileged one by which to think the critique of state violence." End of quote. For Butler, any articulation of an exclusionary Jewish critique of Zionism fails to recognize the settler colonial mechanisms and realities that Zionism has inflicted on its Palestinian victims. Therefore, the Butlerian approach is reparative in this centralizing of Palestinian perspectives within the settler colonial grammar. She underscores equality, justice, cohabitation, and the critique of state violence can only remain Jewish values if they are not exclusively Jewish values. That's according to Butler. The language of the call by Jewish Israelis exemplifies therefore the Butlerian point regarding ethical self-departure as an important relational process that destabilizes identity as ontology. Butler further underscores dispersion itself as an ethical rather than geographic modality. This is where Butler's intervention is also distinctively Jewish in her reclaiming of alterity and dispersion as pivotal for Jewish ethics. This is not an, an ontological claim about Jewish authenticity, but rather a plastic account of relationality with non-Jews. Critically, um, and this is a quote from Butler, the kind of relationality at stake is one that interrupts or challenges the unitary character of the subject. Something happens to the subject that dislocates it from the center of the world, some demand from elsewhere lays claim to me, presses itself upon me, or, or even divides me from within. And only through this fissuring or of who I am do I stand a chance of relating to another." End of quote. The call captures what Butler means by her articulation of alterity and interruption slash dispersion as ethical sources for, for imagining a justice discourse in Palestine, Israel. It amounts to what she calls Jewish non-Jewish ethics, by which she means that Judaism as a source, as a resource, only becomes available for ethical purposes if it first enters into a field of translation and tr transposability. It means that what begins as a resource upon one draws um, upon one draws undergoes a set of changes in the process of being drawn upon uh, this is butler so unlike mannequin the call the plea of israeli jews doesn't make an appeal to specific jewish traditions mm -hmm. and hermeneutics nor does it make conceptual arguments about what makes their criticism of israeli policies and jewish supremacy particularly jewish Indeed, the very realities the signatories embody as Israeli Jews make their criticism of Israelism, qua Jewish supremacy, Jewish, but also non-Jewish in the Butlerian sense. As in Land for All, this manifesto, the explicit grammar of the, of the call are global norms, or at least they appear to be, of equality, democracy, and justice, which themselves constitute a field of translation and transposability, not belonging to any one tradition, in the same way that democracy is not owned by the Greeks. Unlike, unlike Land for All, but like Butler, Many of those signed on the call articulate their ethical outrage and departure from ontological claims and criticism of, of state violence relationally, confronted with the ongoing realities of the Nakba. 
the call also captures the recognition that what is the enemy of justice is a regime of Jewish supremacy, which also dehumanizes the signatories, the oppressors, and those who benefit from this regime at the expense of their humanity, like the urinating soldier in the Palestinian garden. Where the call of Jewish Israelis expands and departs from the Butlerian formulation of Jewish, non-Jewish ethical intervention, is in the signatories' concrete realities inhabiting Jewish Israeliness. Relationality for them is not a matter of a textual elitist discourse with the like of Edward Said and Mahmoud Darwish from the Palestinian landscape and the usual European Jewish stars such as Hannah Arendt and Walter Benjamin, but rather a politically concrete interruption and exposure of the settler colonial grammar that persists regardless of their efforts to shift the discourse within Israel. This is not to discount the Butlerian intervention, but to illuminate the degree to which the call of these Israeli Jews conveys a more historically located and embodied interruption of Jewish supremacist frames. Such a Jewish-Israeli critique of Zionism is Jewish specifically because it's, it's non-Jewishness. Another blind spot in Butler's account also reflective in her interlocutors is the lack of engagement with the other victims of European Zionism, namely non-Ashkenazi Jews, Mizrahim, Ethiopians, um, and other marginalized communities. Many of the signatories of the call are also people who work to bring to bear an expensive account of victimhood, inclusive of Mizrahi dispossession and marginalization, as well as cultural erasures, as they are linked to the ongoing Nakba of Palestinians without equating those processes, because Mizrahim, for instance, have too become beneficiaries and executioners of the settler colonial entrenchment. Still, a reparative and restorative justice prism must bring into focus the interrelatedness of narratives of victimization and targeting by state violence, those multiple communities experience and such, and such work on intellectual and sociological registers cannot simply be confined to a conversation with Levinas, Benjamin Arendt, and Primo Levi, or Buber. <laughs> um, this is where the profound Butlerian insight remained diasporic. The, diasp the, the diasporism of her account is not in her introduction of dispersion as an ethical principle of alterity constituting a source of political ethics, but rather in her confinement of the discourse of Jewish non-Jewish ethics to the European Jews, European Jewish canon of the early to middle 20th century. Finally, a GPS to nowhere. The organization Zuchurot, literally they remember in the female form conjugation, emerged as an in intentional effort to excavate the memories of the Nakba and educate the Jewish-Israeli public about Israel's definitional creation moment, the Nakba. As an organization, it engages in research and public outreach and education to dispel myopias and force Israeli Jews to confront their mythologies and presumed, and presumed innocence. The formative years of Zohrot focused on researching the stories and events of the Nakba, as I said, taking Israelis and others on tours of depopulated and destroyed Palestinian villages, collecting oral testimonies, of Palestinians and creating an app sarcastically referred to as a GPS to nowhere of, of the land and its lost villages and their stories and, and, and towns. Um, and with those lost towns are lost, lost our Palestinian indigenous lives and practices. The more recent time, and partly because of the kind of global patterns of linking the Palestinian struggle to transnational and global struggles of indigenous peoples as they intersect with a, a critique of settler colonialism and white supremacy, supremacist ideologies globally, Zohrot turned to interrogate concretely Israel's own enmeshment in European settler colonial discourse. A campaign, a recent campaign targeting the settler colonial institution and mechanism of the Jewish National Fund, JNF, 
captures the, uh, this deepening of Zohrot's restorative justice work. It doesn't only confront Zionism as an abstract, but its concrete and sacred institution, the JNF, and its sacralized blue box circulated for weekly donations among Jews the world over for over a century. This focus conveys an intentional decolonizing work, unsettling a pillar of the concrete mechanism of the Zionist project, demystifying its function, exposing its violent character. So using the hashtag ExposeKKL, with KKL referring to the Hebrew acronym for the JNF, Zohrot's social media campaign that is ongoing now, September, October 2021, explicitly pushes the story it tells far beyond 1948. In 2021, it tells a story of 120 years of Jewish intentional policies of dispossession targeting Palestinian lands. The campaign exposes the um, systematic dimensions of this process of dispossession, its violence, and its ongoing nature. In describing the hashtag ExposeKKL campaign, Zohrot acknowledges that this arm of Jewish colonization is still romanticized among Jewish publics. It is time, finally, to confront it for what it is, Zohrot argues. It, um, it's spearheaded and implemented the systemic depopulation of Palestinians, framing its work from its inception as redeeming the land, Geulata Aretz, Geulata Adama, through land purchase and, est and establishing Jewish settlements, so using the concept of Hit Yashvut, and later, which later became Hit Nachlut. This framing of hashtag expose KKL begins with asking a question otherwise not asked because of the un unquestioned status of the JNF in Zionist discourse and Jewish-Israeli life. Why is this foundation still in existence? Um, ask, for instance, Naama Benger Al-Aluf in an article that provided in an alternative media outlet the campaign's background. She quotes Echad Ham's description of the systematic purchase of land in the late 19th century in Palestine, where he underscored that this is neither an easy nor cheap task, but ultimately it constitutes a good economic deal for the natives. The JNF, however, purchased the lands from Effendis who lived in major centers of the Ottoman Empire. This is a well-known um, story. Uh, once lands shifted ownership, the Palestinian peasants were forcefully expelled from the lands. They worked for sometimes centuries, leaving them in poverty, but also in a state of this uprootedness. What Benger Al-Aluf does here is to emphasize that the, the starting point of a restorative approach is not in 1948 or the Nakba, but comprehending what a venerated institution such as the JNF was designed to do. So hashtag expose KKL is not yet another Jewish-Israeli critical engagement with Zionism qua Israelism. Calling the JNF a settler colonial instrument constitutes a temporal but also conceptual shift of focus. Zohot's deepening of its vision and analysis of the JNF's role in redeeming the land one land purchase at a time, therefore, constitutes a significant move that exposes an overarching continuity between the early systematic colonization through real estate and contemporary realities of evictions in occupied East Jerusalem, for example. The principle of redeeming the land has been remarkably constant in expanding Jewish territorial presence and minimizing Palestinian presence on the land. The practices of demographic engineering that manifest in the territories Israel occupied in 67 are no departure from the settler colonial logic that had informed the JNF and its explicit agenda of Judaiza Judaization of the land. The Judaizing of space, so land-centric Jew Jewishness, has been entangled since the late 19th century with blood-based Judaism, but has converged politically and sociologically in recent decades, very clearly, very explicitly. This manifests in policing communal boundaries, as in the highly gendered discourse of protecting Jewish girls and women from Arab men, a rhetoric that defines Jewish-Israeli gangs, such as Lehavah, 
but also echoes and reinforces the increasing mainstreaming of Kahanism with its racial logic and its obsession with Jewish power and blood purity and continuity. What can be identified, therefore, is a blood and land-centric Jewish nationalism, while the violence of Kahanism and messia messianic settlers' ideologies is clear for many Jewish Israeli critics of such, uh, of such expression of Zionism or Jewish na nationalism, their critical interrogation as well as proposals for rescripting futures in the land remain beholden, as I highla highlighted, to a settler paradigm. And the example of land for all is, is, is one. So even if a land for all constitutes an attempt by Palestinians and Israelis to imagine an open land, namely two states, one homeland, the very conceptualization of the space as a homeland participates in erasure of how indeed it became a home for third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation of Israeli Jews who colonized and Judaized the space. This is where Zuchot's hashtag expose KKL constitute a Jewish non-Jewish ethical interruption of ontological claims, thereby illuminating a restorative and therefore relational justice pathway. Zohot's approach as a Jewish-Israeli critical interruption of Zionism is restorative in that it confronts and names the root causes of injustice for Palestinians, thereby decolonizing the peace discourse and exposing its myopias and, uh, in ways reminiscent of the Butlerian intervention. To conclude, bringing, the uh, bringing in the language of restoration or reparation as an exercise in reclaiming Jewish authenticity is not only counterproductive and reactionary, it is also ahistorical and abstract. More often than not, Jewish critics of Zionism or Israelism are more preoccupied with the hurt the Israeli occupation, annexationist agenda, and settler colonial dynamics inflict on the Jewish tradition itself. Indeed, such Jewish critics are more concerned with how to repair Jewishness or restore it into diasporism by undoing its moral exile or moral transgression, rather than concretely redressing the harms done to multiple publics, including non-Ashkenazi Jews within the racialized framework of Jewish-Israeli discourse. The focus on Palestinian experiences or on the victims of this set of relationships and structures will also then generate a set of reparative practices to attempt to right the wrongs in contrast to a settler colonial atonement paradigm. Mm -hmm. A grounded Jewish, non-Jewish, Israeli reparative outlook cannot anchor itself on a biblical restorative grammar that transforms the settler into native through acts of erasure, displacement, and replacement. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, let me press the button. Mm.